Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want us to think about the best gift you've ever received. So for me, it was when I was about six or seven years old. um, And in my school, you were either a scooter girl or you weren't a scooter girl. Obviously, (laughs) to be a scooter girl, you had to have a scooter. And I begged my parents to have a scooter. And they were the kind of parents that were like, well, wait till birthday or Christmas. But I was like, but I don't know if I can wait till birthday or Christmas. My social status is, you know, precarious. Anyway, so I was begging my parents for this scooter and um, I came down on Christmas Day and I saw in my stocking was a box that was sort of micro-scooter shaped and I went and I tore it open and it was a scooter and I burst into tears because I was so happy I was now a scooter girl. My life had been changed. Um, And obviously that's quite a trivial sort of best gift ever. But the preach that I'm going to be giving to us today is to think about how Jesus is the best gift ever. See, that's a very good segue into that. Not cheesy whatsoever. Um, And we're coming at it from a series that we've been doing in um, the book of John. So John is one of the Gospels in the Bible. And so we've been looking at how John's Gospel gives us a portrait of Jesus, sort of understanding who he is. Um, And so just a bit of background on the book of John. It's quite different in style to the other three Gospels. Um, It's different because there's quite a few things that aren't present in this Gospel that are in all the other Gospels. So, for example, it doesn't include the parables. It doesn't mention certain key events, such as the Lord's Supper or Jesus casting out demons or Jesus' temptation. Um, And it also includes some things that the other Gospels don't. So, for example, it includes when Jesus turned water into wine or the story of the woman at the well or Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it also contains a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus that isn't in the other Gospels. And that's the passage that I'm looking at today. But there is an explanation as to why the Gospel of John looks like this. And all of the Gospels are really clear that when they're written, they're just a selection of the many miracles and things that Jesus did, because to write them all back all out would just be impossible. So they had to choose what to include. And the the Gospel of John was actually written after the other Gospels. So John had the other Gospels to see what had already been written and was already circulating. And so I reckon he was able to choose which events he wanted to include, which ones he thought were necessary to have a really deep and rich understanding of Jesus that the other Gospels didn't already include. So he thought about what we needed to know to be believers and followers of Christ. And in John chapter 20, it says, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe in Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. So he wanted to give us a really deep picture of who Jesus was. So that's the context for the passage. I'm just going to launch into it and read it. So it's John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. And it says... So it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone with born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I'll tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoops. So in this passage, we get to know a guy called Nicodemus, and he has quite an impressive reputation as a religious leader. So he wasn't only a Pharisee, which were some of the religious leaders at the time, but it was also part of the Sanhedrin, which was a very important Jewish council. However, he was seeking more truth than the other Pharisees were at the time. So at that time when Jesus was receiving a lot of backlash from the other Pharisees, Nicodemus was really intrigued and, and saw something in what Jesus was saying and doing. So this kind of sets the scene for the passage that we've just read. But to fully understand the message that I'm going to bring, um, we have to understand... Oh my gosh, there's a fly. We have to understand where Nicodemus is up to in his belief in who Jesus said he was. And so as I said, he's a very high and respected leader. But he was definitely beginning to understand that Jesus was maybe telling the truth. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. So although he's starting to believe Jesus, he's still scared or ashamed to be associated with Jesus. Um, and because he can't be seen questioning his own beliefs <clears throat> by finding out more from Jesus. But he also calls Jesus rabbi. And so that's the Hebrew word for teacher. So he recognizes that Jesus is a teacher who comes from God. And that's kind of contrary to what a lot of his fellow Pharisees thought. But Nicodemus recognized that Jesus' miracles and work did come from God. But he was sort of only halfway there. He believed in God. He believed that Jesus performed miracles. But those beliefs sort of stopped short of making any changes in Nicodemus' life. He didn't have the full picture of who Jesus was and what it meant to believe in him, not just to believe him. And so in this passage, Jesus immediately cuts in to Nicodemus' questioning with a statement that goes straight to the heart of the matter. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And so this is the crux of what I want to start to talk about today, that to follow Jesus and to be a part of his kingdom means that we need to be born again. And that's what Nicodemus is missing in this passage. But what exactly does it mean to be born again? It's one of those phrases that I'm sure gets thrown around quite a lot. But when we look at the translation of the phrase born again in this passage, it's really quite interesting. So the translation for the word born is janao. I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation, but it means to become the parent of. But this can either be translated in terms of born, you know, like physically being birthed as a mother would, or begotten, which is the term that's often used in relation to the father, who doesn't physically birth the child, but creates the child and signifies a really close paternal relationship with them. So as we see in Nicodemus um, in this passage, he takes the word in a physical sense of being, in the sort of being birthed again, and he he spends a bit of time um, imagining how we as humans could re-enter our mother's wombs. You know, for someone who's a religious leader, I'm not quite sure how we got there with that sort of intellect, (laughs) but he's taken the really physical sense of being born. But elsewhere in the passage, it seems to point more towards the begotten translation, that we're not reborn in a physical sense. You know, there's no physical way to go back into the mother's womb and be born again but that we are begotten or born into and brought into a new family of close relationship. And then the translation of the word again in the born again phrase is the word another, which can both mean born anew or born from above. 
And there's been lots of arguments in theology about which translation John actually meant to use, but a lot of people agree on the fact that he actually meant to use the ambiguous term because it's quite intentional about what Jesus wanted to say. He thinks that Jesus wants to say to be born again is to be brought into a familial relationship with God that is both new and is from above, that it's heavenly. Being born again is being born into a new life, but it's also a spiritual life. So if we have this understanding, when Jesus talks about being born again, it opens up this idea that before being born again, we're in a condition that separates us from God. We're spiritually dead. We're legally guilty under God's judgment. But if we stand on the other side of being born again, we're now in a relationship with God. So we're now together with his spirit. We're alive in his spirit. And if we're in a relationship with God, there must have been something that restored or overturned our immorality. And so as we move through this passage, we'll see that John gives the answer to how this happens. Of course, the answer is Jesus. Um, But for now, we can sit on the understanding that to live in God's kingdom and be in relationship with him, we have to be born again, born anew and born into a new spirit. And so when I was younger, you'll see that a lot of my stories relate to my childhood because young Alicia had a lot to learn. (laughs) But I have a very distinct memory of being on holiday. And for some reason, I knew in my head, well, I thought in my head that to make cement, you just needed sand and water. So I was getting sand and getting water, trying to make these like structures. And obviously it wasn't staying together. I was really frustrated. Like, how can cement make buildings? But I can't do it right here. So I said to my mum, like, mum, how do you make cement? And she was like, oh, it's sand, water and cement. I was like, mum, you can't make cement with the cement. How do you make (laughs) cement? And like, there's back and forth conversation my poor mum just dealing with it and obviously when I'm older I realise that you get cement mix and you mix it with sand and water I think is that correct yeah yeah (laughs) Um, but you use cement mix to make cement and so when I was thinking about this when we're talking about being born into a relationship with God we might ask how can we be born into a relationship with God well the answer is it's through God it's through Jesus. And so as the cement transforms, as the cement mix transforms into cement with water, it's still cement, but it's, it's, it's gone through a transformation. And so God transforms us into a relationship with him through Jesus. The only thing that we need to add is our decision to do it. And so if we agree that this un, on this understanding, it becomes clear that there is some change that needs to happen. But that can maybe start us into a spiral to think, well, how do I rebirth myself? You know, we're not taking the Nicodemus route of physical rebirth, but how do I get into that family with God? What do I need to do? But I think the first thing to know is that we don't cause new birth. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. We just make a decision to be born again. But we don't actually do the actual transformation. God does. We can't make ourselves perfect and new before God. So God does that for us through Jesus. And I think it confronts us with a reality that as humans... Well, therefore, we're quite helpless and we're needing to depend on someone that's bigger and better and perfect. But to me, that's quite a reassurance. You know, I'm not responsible for making myself perfect, for renewing myself. I just need to sign up to doing that. And that's a reassurance for me because there's no way that I'm perfect. And so Jesus tries to go on to to reiterate this to Nicodemus about being born again. And so if we go back to verse 8, he says... The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So what Jesus is trying to say is that the wind is like people born of the Spirit, so that God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. And although the effects of that can be seen, it can't, you know, we can't control God's Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is also like this. We don't have control over it or where it may lead us in God's kingdom, but we are changed by it. And equally, as someone who's not born again, like Nicodemus, they can see the effects of the wind, but they can't grasp it. They can't be a part of it. 
unless we are born again or unless we choose to let God change us. So before Jesus came, the Jews had hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for a promised Messiah. And their idea of who that was going to be was based on all these prophecies from the Old Testament. And they had interpreted it to mean that there was going to be this big warrior hero who was going to come in and destroy the enemies and bring this new kingdom of God. And they had quite a literal sort of understanding of what that would look like. And if that was the case, it would have been quite easy to see that happening and coming in. You know, you've got a big warrior charging in with an army and things like that, killing lots of enemies. And that's who they were waiting for. But Jesus was actually the answer to those prophecies, but he came very gently. And this passage is one of the only references to the kingdom of God in John. But I think it's really essential that Jesus included it in this conversation with Nicodemus because he was confirming that he was the one who was prophesied about to come and bring this new kingdom. But he was doing it by turning their religious interpretation on its head. He was saying that entering into God's kingdom and bringing his kingdom is a relationship with God and that being changed and being renewed and reborn by that is how we enter into that kingdom. And this can only happen through the spirit. God's kingdom is not brought by a violent warrior, um, but by Jesus who gives us a way to commit to God and become his begotten family in a kingdom of other believers. So the kingdom is not a physical one fought for in a battle, but a spiritual one that we enter through being born again. But Nicodemus at this point didn't grasp this. As we saw before, he came to see Jesus at night, so he was, he was quite ashamed or scared to be seen with Jesus. And Jesus was challenging Nicodemus to move away from that theory of knowing and believing about God to actually launching into a faith with God, to follow Jesus, to be reborn, to be changed, and to enter into the kingdom of God. And verse 12 essentially says that, Jesus essentially says that he's taken Nicodemus as far as he can on this journey of explaining this to him. He says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In effect, he's saying, you keep asking me for more information and bigger explanations about being born again. But the only way you can find out more is to take that step to do it and to sign up to it. So I think Jesus makes it quite clear that we need to be born again. And it's something that he asks us to do as part of following him. But it's also a really beautiful result of following him. We are begotten into God's family. We're restored and we're changed and brought into a relationship with a perfect God without having to be perfect ourselves. And we're moved and changed by a spirit that is far more powerful than us. But something that's been popping up throughout what I've been saying so far is that if it's clear that we need to be reborn, but we can't be the ones to do the actual transformation, how does it happen? And so if we go into verse 14 and 15, Jesus explains this. So he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now something you'll spot about the Bible is there's sometimes things that people do in the Bible that unless you look into them don't make sense. And I reckon Moses lifting up a snake (laughs) is probably one of them. So we're going to unpack that, so don't worry. So I did a bit of digging and where the bit in the Bible where Moses is doing the lifting up of this snake is in Numbers 21. So in Numbers 21, Moses is with the Israelites who are still travelling to the promised land and the Israelites were doing the usual classic thing of grumbling over not having the food they wanted or whatever it was that's quite a common occurrence was for the Israelites to, to grumble. So if we go to Numbers 21 and pick up from verse 6, it says... Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. When people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. 
Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and they put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So when they looked at the bronze bronze snake that was lifted up on a pole, they were healed. And Jesus is saying that he, the son of man, will be lifted up so that people can look to him, be healed from their sins and have eternal life. And Jesus was lifted up in many ways. He was lifted up physically on a cross. He was raised from the dead and then he ascended in glory. So in three ways, Jesus was lifted up. And those three ways are the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could be restored and born again. And, so, and this passage tells us that it is the spirit that rebirths us. But the job of the Holy Spirit is to point us to God, to direct us to Jesus. So when we look at Jesus in the same way that, that the Israelites looked to this bronze snake, we can see the glory of Christ dying and rising again for our sake. And we're reborn into the kingdom that God paved a way for us to enter into by Jesus dying on the cross. And so when I was a bit younger in my high school years, I liked to do um, like public speaking things. Um, and each time it made me incredibly nervous, though. It was this weird thing of like, you get a bit of a thrill from it, but it was also absolutely the most debilita- debilitating nerves I ever used to get. But what really gave me comfort and peace was having someone in the crowd that I could look to. It was often my dad, who was one of the most like, had no sort of filter or sense of embarrassment, would be stood like that for me. Or my mum, who was just very calm and a nice present. But whoever it was, I could look up, stop looking at myself and what I was feeling. I could look up, look at my mum or dad, and I would just feel that comfort and that peace. And looking at them really had a change in me. And then I could go on and do whatever I was doing. And the anxiety wouldn't be there as much. So I stopped looking at myself and I looked to someone else who could provide that comfort and that stability. And so if that's something that we can feel from really comfortable and safe people in our life, how much more is that something that Jesus can do? And so Jesus picked to compare himself to this passage because this scenario really paints quite an intricate picture of Jesus. So in Moses' passage, the serpent on a pole is not a preventative thing that God did. You know, the snakes have already attacked the people in the camp and the snake is there to save them. These people already have the poison in them, and without divine intervention, they'll die. In a similar way, humanity is already broken, humanity is sinful, but Jesus came to save us from our poison so that we can be born again. The snakes in the camp are sent from the Lord. Um, He sent them, which is quite a jarring thought, but it still really applies to how Jesus operates. God um, God is a completely perfect God, so he cannot be tainted by anything that isn't perfect. And who was the most imperfect person that could approach God? Me, you, all of us. So if we are judged as we are, God would have us sent to death. But that means that God chose to rescue us by not doing that. God also gives us the solution to that. All that has to be done to be saved is to look to the snake hanging on the pole for the Israelites or for us to look to Jesus on the cross, lifted from the dead and lifted to heaven. Jesus is that source of healing from the wages of sin, which is death. His healing is that he gives us eternal life. So when we come to the question of how we're born again, how we come into God's kingdom and to be wiped from our sins so that we can approach God, the answer is Jesus. He was lifted on the cross for us so that he could take all of our sins and transform us. Now, if we think back to my scooter girl era, back then was when I thought I had been given the best gift. And as a six-year-old, that's kind of understandable. But for this last bit, I just want us to redirect our thinking to Jesus as this amazing gift, something that has been given to us. And so when we're looking, at, looking through this passage in John, we begin to kind of unpack what it means to be born of the Spirit, being born into a life that the Holy Spirit gives us. And that's only in connection with Jesus. 
Union in G- with Jesus is where we experience this supernatural spiritual life and it's where we enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus says later in John in chapter 14, says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 20, John then says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, son of God, and that by, be- by believing you may have life in his name. So when Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life, flesh isn't any help at all, or when he says, you must be born of the spirit in order to have life, it means this, that new birth in the Holy Spirit gives us a new spiritual life by connecting us with Jesus through faith. And I think that really brings us back to the simplicity of the gospel. There's no extra fluff. It's simply to say that Jesus is the way to God and the way to be transformed and born again in the spirit. And this passage explains that when we unite with Jesus, which the spirit enables us to do, we are changed and we're transformed. It explains that we need to choose to do this and to be changed by doing this. And this leads bang slap into the cracking verse that is John 3.16, which I'm sure many of us have heard before, but I'm just going to read it again. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this verse sums up and explains why it has to be Jesus. It explains why God sent Jesus. It explains God's love. This verse has been heard so many times in so many preachers, but every time I break it down, it just floors me because it just opens up the depth of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he has come here to do. First of all, God loved the world. He loves humanity. He has always loved humanity and he will always love humanity. There's no one that can escape that love. And then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God's love was so intense that it resulted in him sacrificing his son. And then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This gives us the purpose of what Jesus is trying to say. God's love resulted in him sacrificing his son for the purpose of preventing us from perishing and to give us eternal life. So God just didn't just give us something, he gave us someone. And this passage ultimately, and ultimately this verse, really shows us a lot about the Trinity. We've already touched a lot on about how God is the Holy Spirit, and um, that's a real big part of our transformation in our relationship with God. But this verse reminds us that although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully human, so he is fully God's son with a father. And so when we think of a father giving up a son for us, that has to mean something. If you asked a good parent what their highest sacrifice would be that they could give, it would probably be their child. But imagine there's someone out there who wants to be with you and who would do that in order to be with you, no matter how imperfect you think you are. In one single verse, there are so many things that we question in our human life that Jesus just sums up. God, love, the world, Jesus, faith, perishing forever, living forever. There's nothing more relevant or urgent than what Jesus has to say to answer these questions. And I think this verse acknowledges that we're sinners who need saving. And thank goodness I don't have to rely on myself to find salvation and perfection because I wouldn't find it in myself. I would fall short. And so if to be born again is to be in a relationship with God, and if in order to do this we have to be spiritually alive and morally renewed, then it is Jesus who does this through his sacrifice. His perfection replaces our sin and allows us to be born again. And Paul puts it really nicely in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. 
Salvation is a gift from God, not something that we can earn or deserve. It is a gift and it gives us eternal life, but it also saves us from perishing as well. And the simplicity of this gift and the unconditionality and the openness of this gift is really planted so neatly in this verse. It says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's it. In John chapter 1, it, it, says, um, it says what it means to believe in Jesus. And it says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in Jesus is to believe what he says and did is true and to receive what he says and does. To believe that Jesus died on the cross because we're sinners and that because of this and him rising again, we're forgiven. When Jesus says that he's the way, the truth and the life, um, to believe in Jesus is to receive that truth and let it transform us. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Believing means coming to Jesus and receiving him as food and drink that satisfies our souls. And that is how Jesus transforms us. So to answer the question of what do I need to do to be born again, it is to believe in Jesus and his salvation. No hoops to jump through, nothing more than that. We have eternal life both because Christ died in our place and because in him is life. And so as I'm bringing it into a close, I just want us to maybe think about how this might apply to us. You might be sat here and you might not believe in Jesus. So I want to ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? Have you had that? Have you been born again? Do you want eternal life? Being born into um, this relationship with God is being born into a relationship with the perfect God. To follow Jesus, who is so for us that he sacrificed his entire life for us. Or if you do know that, do you just need reminding of that again? Have there been things that have got in the way that make you think you need to do more to be better for Jesus or you need to do this to be saved? I just want to remind us that Jesus is the source of our salvation. It's the spirit that makes us born again. The only thing that God needs from us is our choice. And it might be that you know this in your head, but you struggle to feel this in your heart. There's an amazing book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland that kind of really taps into this. Um, and... There's a passage at the start that just says, we're not focusing centrally on what Christ has done. We are considering who he is. The two matters are bound up together and indeed interdependent, but they are distinct. The gospel offers not only legal exoneration, it also sweeps us into Christ's very heart. You might know that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to rinse you clean of all your sin, but do you know his deepest heart for you? Do you live in awareness not only of his atoning work for your sinfulness, but also of his longing heart amid your sinfulness? So I hope that we can think about how God loves us. He died and sacrificed for us, but I pray we can feel it in our hearts as well. It's one thing to have knowledge that Jesus did this, but this knowledge reveals that God is such a loving God who seeks us out and wants to be with us. And God's gift of Jesus is to give us this new life in love.